This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Mike Smithson. Card number 554, pitcher for the Minnesota Twins. Okay, Mike Smithson. But before we get to him, we do have some breaking news. The breaking news this week is that baseball is going to end its partnership with the Topps Corporation. Currently, Topps is in its 70th year of making baseball cards, but they will no longer have exclusive rights to Major League Baseball and the Major League Baseball Players Association likenesses starting in a few years. And I've gotten notes on this from many listeners, friends and family concerned about the state of the podcast. I mean, knowing that we're talking about cards that are 33 years old, so (laughs) this is always timeless and not dependent on the continued existence of the Topps Corporation. However, I was looking forward to 2037 when Topps gets around to the 1988-styled heritage cards. Mm. But I guess MLB is going to go with Fanatics, and Fanatics.com is going to create a card company, and they will have the exclusive license to baseball cards. I don't know how to feel about this, David, because I'm sure what's going to happen is they're going to put a microchip with a Bitcoin or a fluze inside of each card. There's no gum anymore. Everything has changed. The game has changed. The cards are going to start on second base, and there's going to be robot card umpires, cats and dogs living together. Total mayhem. Yeah, I don't know how to feel about this either. I think that there is a part of me that is nostalgic for what the Topps Corporation has meant as far as the the look and feel of the cards. And throughout time, some of those images and iconography are timeless. The Mickey Mantle rookie card, the the Nolan Ryan rookie, these all of every single one of these 792 plus 1988 Topps cards is a timeless, beautiful piece of art. But it's a business. I guess when we were growing up, there were multiple card companies who all had the ability to use the likenesses and the team names. And that's been gone for a while. And card collecting has been kind of on the downswing and then only to be rejuvenated in the last year. And so I don't know quite know how to feel about this. I, it is sad, and there is a loss, I guess. I feel like a loss, but I, I don't have a lot of connection to the Topps Corporation, even in spite of uh, the fact that we I, spend a lot of our time talking about it. Yeah, there is a connection there. It's a, it's a sad state of affairs, but it is an unavoidable change in the way that media, intellectual property, and worldwide entertainment is going. We see it in music, we see it in sports, we see it in movies, we see it in television, and every type of entertainment, the formats change, the companies change, and all those things happen, all of them being designed to make the most profit for the large corporation at the top that owns the intellectual property. And this is just, like I said, unavoidable that one way or another, traditions will die, the formats will change, 
And some corporation is going to try to squeeze a little bit more money out of a consumer and give a little bit less money to a supplier. And I think that's just what happened here. But what are you going to do? And I'm just going to go back to looking at my pictures of baseball players on Laserdisc. Ooh, ooh, it's a good idea. After new tops cards are be- stop being made, we will still be talking about old cards. So rest assured, listeners, this does not affect our timeline in any way. So now let's go to Mike Smithson, number 554. And Mike was recommended by a listener. Yes. I got a note on Facebook from a listener named Ryan. And he said, can you do a Mike Smithson podcast? And my response was, are you guys related? Because Ryan had the same last name. Mike is Ryan's uncle. And so apologies, Ryan, that it took it took me so long to get to this one on the list. Honestly, I was a little bit intimidated knowing that a family member would listen to this. You know, we've had Mike Dunn listen to his own episode, but I didn't know that that was going to happen. So going into this, I wanted to make sure that I could, one, find enough information on Mike Smithson, but also be able to verify that going in. Like, I, we always try to strive for accuracy in our reporting of up-to-date news on all of the important players of our time. But Ryan was very helpful, said that he was happy to help, and provided a couple stories and suggestions for me to look into, and in, including a suggestion that there's a portion of the book, bottom of the 33rd, dedicated to Mike. So we will add in some of that info throughout from that book, bottom of the 33rd, as well as some interviews and some other stuff uh, on Mike Smithson, and maybe a, a trip to the 1988 Tops Book Club. Ooh, ooh, I like it. So that's exciting. We've got a family version of the show today. Can't family wait. Family friendly. Family, family f- always family friendly. Now let's look at the front of 554. This is a good looking card. Mike has just finished delivery. We've got uh, as a right-handed pitcher. And we've got one of your favorite things, David, which is that his hat is covering up the W and T in twins. So you get a little bit of that depth effect. And it looks like you also, with this the gray pinstripe uniform and black or dark navy shirt underneath it's good color combination and it looks like there's a lot of fans in the stands behind him too the blurry fan effect also blurry speed showing with mike's right hand after that delivery it's a good picture also making a a mean face toward the toward the batter there that is a look of determination his eyes are looking straight ahead mouth is a little bit open but that's a good determined look and mike takes up a lot of this card not a lot of open space his whole body filling up the entire card and mike was a very large man and that's a very good scowl on mike absolutely going to the back of the card he's he's six eight is that right am i looking at that yeah going to the back of the card large absolutely he's six foot eight 215 a right-handed thrower and left-handed batter Drafted by the Red Sox in the fifth round of June 1976. Born January 21st, 1955, Centerville, Tennessee, with a home in Bellevue, Tennessee. That name, Smithson, I don't think that he is related to James Smithson, the English chemist and mineralogist for whom the Smithsonian Institute is named. James Smithson 
never actually visited the United States. He didn't have children, so he left his estate to his nephew. And he stipulated that if his nephew died without children, the estate would go to create in Washington an establishment for the increase and diffusion of knowledge among men. So James Smithson died in Italy and never made it to the United States. So I don't think that he's related to Mike Smithson. But we also have a six degrees of separation here between Mike and Jim Whalewander. Mm. Jim's favorite band was the Dead Milkmen. And in their song, Punk Rock Girl, they referenced dressing like a famous comedian. And that comedian is from Centerville, Tennessee. And her name was Sarah Ophelia Collie Cannon, but is better known as Minnie Pearl. Hmm, Minnie Pearl. Well, howdy. I, <laughs> I love it. I, I love Minnie Pearl. I talk about Minnie Pearl all the time on my other podcast called Hee Ha, Hoo Ha, and Hoopla. In your podcast, have you talked about the chicken wire statue in Centerville? Mm, I have not, but now, I've, now I know what to talk about next episode. Yes, this, there is a giant chicken wire mini pearl bust in Centerville that is outstanding, and we'll include a link to that on Roadside America. Minnie's fictional hometown is Grinder Switch. And Grinder Switch was a railroad switch outside of Centerville. And she would talk about this place in her act. She talked about it so much that people would travel and look for it. And the county changed the name of the road so that people wouldn't congregate there. That place, fans thought that it was a made-up place. But it's a real place, only it's not a town. Grinder Switch is a place where a spur track came off a main railroad. And Minnie's father would load lumber from his nearby sawmill onto the train cars. So she would talk about this place in her act as this small town or this kind of mythical small town. She's famous for her howdy, I'm just so proud to be here line. And in watching videos of Minnie Pearl, I, I learned that one-liners are basically universally funny. <laughs> This year is uh, a little different. It is different. Now, you take Uncle Nabob. I wish somebody would. He, uh, he ain't a failure. He just started at the bottom, and he likes it there. Minnie Pearl's uncle, I guess, the original Drake. Mm. Mike also grew up in Centerville, not in Grinder Switch. His dad worked at the Genesco Shoe Factory. Centerville's the county seat of Hickman County, which, according to Johnny Cash... Hickman County is a, a good place to spend a Saturday night. His full name on baseball reference is given as Billy Mike Smithson. I appreciate that he has two shortened forms in his name. Not William Michael. He is Billy Mike Smithson. His college nickname was Snuffy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that. You know, it's, it's a lot better than True Creature. That's true. Or Creech, yeah. It's better than Creech. My guess, I have a guess on this, is that this was about the cartoon Snuffy Smith. And Snuffy Smith was this caricature of a, a small town kind of hillbilly. And perhaps that this was a reference to, with the last name Smithson, Snuffy Smithson. I'm not sure. And Mike being from a small town, I don't know. Ryan, 
If you have any correction on that, feel free to let us know. It doesn't seem like that nickname continued into the pros, but that was his college nickname. He was a, an accomplished athlete at Hickman County High School. Of course, being 6'8", he was naturally a basketball player. The high school didn't have a baseball team until his junior year, and he only played baseball that junior year. Senior year, he concentrated on basketball for good reason. He was recruited to play at the University of Tennessee by Ray Mears. In his time at University of Tennessee, he is listed as a center. He only appeared in 16 games in two seasons, but this was a really good team. They had future NBA players, the Ernie and Bernie show, in Ernie Grunfeld and Hall of Famer Bernard King playing on this Volunteers basketball team. They would win the SEC championship in 1977, but that was the year after Mike left. He did get to play in the big dance. He played one minute and scored two points in an NCAA tournament loss to VMI in 1976. David, his baseball career kind of gets an accidental start where he's just playing catch on campus and the baseball coach saw him. (laughs) He was playing with another two-sport athlete. The coach asks him if he wants to try out. He got permission from Coach Mears, and he turned out to be a pretty good pitcher. He's not a starter, so it makes sense, and he ends up doing great. He had a 13-2 and record as a college pitcher, striking out 72 batters in 75 innings in his junior season, and ends up making the SEC All-Eastern Division. He made that Eastern Division team along with his teammate Rick Honeycutt, who at the time was listed as a first baseman, but would go on to a long pitching career. In Mike's time at Tennessee, they had two 30-win seasons, finishing second in the SEC twice. Mike was named to the all-century team for the University of Tennessee. So coming out of college, he doesn't get drafted into the NBA, but he does get drafted by the Red Sox in the fifth round in 1976. Yeah, this feels like the first one in a while where he's only drafted once. You know, Mike wasn't picked out of high school. He didn't have a bunch of community college seasons where he was picked in a supplemental round. He said that it was a surprise. He got a call from his brother, and he said, you got drafted by the Red Sox. And Mike said that they all expected Rick Honeycutt to get drafted pretty high, but nobody thought Smithson was also going to get picked. He got a $12,000 signing bonus. And he used half of it to buy a brown Monte Carlo. Ooh. Yeah, I'm looking at the picture here. 1976 Chevy Monte Carlo. That is a good-looking car. The base price of this car was listed around $4,000, so he must have gotten a little bit of an upgrade. I'm not quite sure how long he kept it, but he drove this car well into his minor league journey, as we'll see when we get to his time in Pawtucket. The other half of his bonus, he said in, a, in an interview he used on his wedding, he married a woman named Jenny, who he met at the university, and they also took a honeymoon to New Orleans. So pretty nice way to spend your bonus. Unless you're hanging out with Jack McDowell in New Orleans. Do not. <laughs> Do not spend your honeymoon with Jack McDowell in New Orleans. <laughs> Got it. Check. <laughs> Good lesson to learn. He starts out his minor league career at Winter Haven in Florida for A-ball. In two years, he went 17-11 with a 2.86 ERA, ends up getting a call up to double-A. Has some pretty good success in the low levels. When he gets up to double-A, gets a little bit tougher. Has a 4.79 ERA in 78 and 79. 
And prior to 1979, he was a starter. But around this time, the Red Sox start to use him out of the bullpen. So he starts 13 games, comes out of the bullpen for 35 other games. He gets 11 saves, so he's spending some time as a closer. He earns a call up to AAA Pawtucket, which I recently learned is the proper way to pronounce that. I think I had said Pawtucket before. Pawtucket. And listening to Mike pronounce it, that's how he pronounced it. His first season at AAA, he pitches in 50 games, almost exclusively out of the bullpen. 2.91 ERA in 99 innings. Pretty good. But by 1981, he was getting a little frustrated, not making it to the majors yet. And he thought about giving up. Mike was making this drive in his Monte Carlo from Florida to Pawtucket. And the Red Sox at this point couldn't figure out what to do with him if they wanted to use him as a starter or a reliever. He wanted to give it another chance, but he wasn't getting a chance. And his manager was Joe Morgan. And Joe Morgan would let pitchers sit idle on the bench while he rode a hot hand. But in one game in 1981, nobody got to stay on the bench. (laughs) And that is the longest game in professional baseball history. I read this book, Bottom of the 33rd, Hope, Redemption, and Baseball's Longest Game by Dan Barry. Highly recommended, and thank you, Ryan, for the recommendation. The book's about this game between the Paw Sox and the Rochester Red Wings, the Orioles AAA affiliate that started on April 18th, 1981, the Saturday before Easter, and it ended in June. <laughs> The book is really good. It walks through so many things. You know, there's players with names that we know. Ripken, Boggs, Hurst, Marty Barrett, Mike Smithson, and others like Dave Koza, who we don't know as well, who are heroes in this game. Talks about other characters in history of Pawtucket, including mayors, the building of McCoy Stadium. And it's really an amazing story of this cold, rainy, windy unpleasant night. Pitchers are lighting garbage cans on fire to stay warm. People are falling asleep. Everybody leaves except maybe 30 people, and the game just kept going. Smithson pitched in the 15th through 18th innings. (laughs) (laughs) He pitched three scoreless innings of a tie game. The players and managers tried to get the umpires to call the game, but they looked in the rule book, and the rule book that they had did not have a portion of it about calling a game after a certain hour. Every other edition of that rule book had a specific time that a game would no longer be played beyond. So they even call the president of the league. He's out doing something at one in the morning, two in the morning. Finally, at four o'clock in the morning, he says, you have to call this game off. It was the 32nd inning, tied 2-2. Oh, my word. The other good story of in this game, Mike volunteers, probably in that 1976 Monte Carlo, to drive his teammate Luisa Ponte home around 2 a.m. Luisa's wife comes to the door and is screaming at him, just furious, because she didn't believe that the game was still going on, accused him of being out drinking and carousing, and wouldn't let him in the house. So Smithson drives him back to the, to the stadium... And because the game didn't end, the newspaper the next day didn't say what happened, so he couldn't explain to his wife 
So he had to sleep on the couch for a little while, at least until Monday, to prove that he wasn't lying about this 4 a.m. ridiculous baseball game. The game is finally continued in June, two months later, and ends 18 minutes later. But there's a ridiculous number of records that are broken in this game. Pitches thrown, uh, batters faced, 30-plus hits, but only amounting to four or five runs. Uh, Just an amazing thing that Mike was a part of, and they still have reunions every few years of those players to, to talk about this game that's very memorable and highly recommend reading that book and, and the way that it flows is it's great. So we will we'll enter that into the 1988 Tops book club and the recommended reading list. Unfortunately, this epic game and being involved in this game doesn't really change the fortunes for Mike very much at the Red Sox. Going into 1982, he starts spring training with the Red Sox, breaks camp, and heads to Pawtucket, only to arrive there at the hotel to find out that he had just been traded to the Rangers for John Henry Johnson. And he was expected to be in Denver to pitch in three days. (laughs) So him and Jenny will hop in the car and drive out west. And this excursion to Denver leads to the fun fact Mike recorded 11 wins in 29 games and led the American Association with 144 strikeouts at Denver in 1982. He had a good season. Of course, his ERA was slightly elevated. Pitching in Denver will do that. But he was good enough to get called up in late August to the Rangers. Maybe more accurately, they just needed an arm. It should be said that this was a 98-loss Rangers team, so maybe they just needed a sacrificial lamb. But Mike got his call up and his first game was away at Baltimore against Hall of Famer Jim Palmer. So a rough matchup in his first start. He gave up back-to-back doubles to open the game and he went down one nothing. But he settled down and he spread eight hits over eight innings of work. He took a complete game loss, three to one, but a decent start, striking out five against a pretty good Orioles team. And his first win was in his second start, another complete game, again, only giving up three runs, but this time getting seven runs in support. So got a three and four record for that first year in 1982, a 5.01 ERA and three complete games. That bumps him up in 1983 to the opening day starter. And he started a good run, three seasons in a row of 200 plus innings, and he had In 1983, 10 complete games, 10 and 14 record. The Rangers were again under 500, but at this point it wasn't because of their pitching staff. They allowed the fewest runs in the American League. All of their starters had a better than league average ERA plus. And included in that starting lineup was Charlie Huff, Smithson, and his college teammate Rick Honeycutt. Unfortunately, they scored the second fewest runs in the American League. And so they decided they needed to make a move after the 1983 season. And that leads to the This Way to the Clubhouse that Mike was traded by the Rangers to the Twins with John Butcher and Sam Sorcy in exchange for Gary Ward, December 7th, 1983. Sorcy never made the majors. And John Butcher was a starter in 1984 for the Twins. He was pretty good in 34 games, less good in 1985. The Rangers also traded away Rick Honeycutt, and their team went from needing hitting 
to needing pitching. So they kind of overcorrected from 84 to 85. The Twins, though, had a decent young offense with Kent Herbeck, Gary Gaetti, Tom Bernanski. So they wouldn't miss Ward too much. And they had a rookie named Kirby coming into their outfield. And they ended up surprising people with an 11-game improvement in 1984. They went 500, and Smithson led the league in starts, had 15 wins, and 10 complete games. On the downside, though, David, he also led the league in home runs given up with 35. (laughs) Which is maybe a little bit misleading because he pitched 250-plus innings. So when you pitch that many innings, you're going to give up some home runs. But in spite of that, he had an impressive ERA of 3.68. He was also fourth in strikeout-to-walk ratio, so he showed decent control when he wasn't hitting people. (laughs) Yeah, he was fourth in the league in hit-by-pitch, not afraid to throw inside, and was in the top 10 and hit batters six times in his career and led the league in 1985. In an interview, Smithson said that In his first year with the Rangers, Jim Sundberg was calling for inside pitches, and he kept shaking him off. And Sundberg went to the mound and said, how long have you been in the league? Just throw the ball inside. So so Mike learned early on that that was a a path to success. Uh, But, you know, sometimes sometimes he hit some guys. So 1985, the expectations are pretty high for the Twins, and they start out decent. Mike has two complete games in a row in April— a four-hit shutout, and a one-run performance. And the Twins are 21-16 and 16 in late May. But then by mid-June, they go on a long losing streak. And there's some public sniping. Frank Viola is questioning his teammates' intensity. They, in turn, say he should maybe focus on doing his own job. And during this time, Mike had a nine-game run with an ERA of 7.55. But he ended the season pretty decent, 3.71 in his ERA in his last 22 starts to bring to bring that earned run average down to league average. He again led the league in starts, this time with 37. And since 1985, a pitcher has started 37 or more games only 22 times. And a lot of those are kind of the, the old hands and Charlie Huff and Burt Blylevin types. He won 15 games, eight complete games, and three of those wins were shutouts. Again, he's over 250 innings. And he also, the other black ink on this card is earned runs. He led the league in earned runs. But his ERA was decent. It was average. It was just the result of a ton of innings. But the Twins end up in fourth place, eight games under 500 for that 85 season. Yeah, 1986, similarly frustrating for the Twins. They're 71 and 91. They fire their manager, Ray Miller, and promote third base coach Tom Kelly. Okay season. For Mike, in his first 11 starts, he had six complete games. And by the end of the season, was 13-14 and 14 with a 4.77 ERA. So a little sliding a little bit. He said in an interview that he didn't really recover from all that early work. And those six complete games and 11 starts to start the season can put a little bit of strain on a 32-year-old's arm. Batters at this point are hitting 294 against him compared to a couple years previously when they had a 252 average. And this high batting average against would remain a problem for the next couple years. His whip was up around 1.5, up from 1.2 a couple years prior. Yeah, 1987, Mike's now 32 years old. 
this is a great year for the Twins, but it really wasn't a great year for Mike. He won his first three starts, but after that, his next 18 appearances, he went 1-7 with an ERA of 6.94. He suffered from bone spurs in his elbow throughout the 87 season and was sent down to AAA for the first time since 1982. He was recalled, though, in September and made a couple appearances during the stretch run, but he didn't take the mound to the playoffs as he was left off the roster. But he did travel with the team, did some broadcasting work during the playoff run, and got a World Series ring for his contributions to the team. And he was gratified that the team had voted to give him a share of of the spoils and of the rings. Unfortunately, he was released after the season, and which was disappointing. But things came full circle because he ended up signing a AAA contract with the Red Sox organization again and ended up doing something here the second time that he never got to do the first time, which was to actually pitch in the majors for the Red Sox. At this point, he's the tallest player in the major leagues. (laughs) (laughs) Right before Randy Johnson comes and takes that title. So he had a couple years in there where he was the tallest MLB player. He was expected to be a relief option, but ended up starting 18 games for the Morgan Magic Red Sox. That manager who had left him on the bench and made him consider whether or not he had a future in Major League Baseball gave him that second chance. And he had a good record, 9-6, and six, but a 5.97 ERA. And so unlike his time with the Rangers, where there was no offense behind him, this time he's aided by some good and timely hitting. He had six or more runs in support in eight of his starts that season. And he also got to pitch in the playoffs for the first time in his career. He threw two scoreless innings in the deciding Game 4 loss to the A's in the ALCS. And the Red Sox were swept out of the playoffs. So, not a great way to end 1988. And 1989 was even rougher. This ends up being Mike's last year in the majors. He was 7-14 and with an ERA close to 5. He earned two saves, his first major league saves. And he got his last MLB shutout on May 25th against the Mariners starting opposite Mike Dunn. Is that the second Mike Dunn reference in this episode? Yes. <laughs> um, this game ended 10 to nothing, so the win wasn't in doubt. But with two outs in the ninth, Edgar Martinez tries to make it home from second base on a single and is thrown out at home plate by Mike Greenwell to preserve the shutout. And that ends up being Mike's last major league shutout. After that season, which was... Disappointing for the Red Sox, they didn't make the playoffs. He signs a contract with the Angels, but a hip problem keeps him from playing. He initially thought that it was a pulled muscle, but he ended up later needing hip replacement surgery. He did have a guaranteed contract, but was released out of spring training, so he wanted to figure out what his next step was. He didn't really want to play in the minor leagues again, so he retired. So closing the book on Mike Smithson's major league career, eight seasons... 76-86 and record, 4.58 ERA, and 41 complete games. What about in retirement? At first, Mike was living in Nashville. He was helping coach at a junior college. He did some color commentary for the Nashville Sounds AAA team. He's still married to Jenny, the woman that he met in college, and they moved back home to Centerville to help his father out with his farm. Every now and then, Mike travels back to Boston for reunions of that Morgan Magic team. He talks about reunions of that 1981 
longest game in history group. And in 2004, he was inducted into the University of Tennessee Hall of Fame. He said, the university still is such a part of my life. I met my wife here. I could tell you what a special honor this means to me. It's something I never would have imagined, a kid from Centerville being in the Hall of Fame. But what a great honor. I'm just humbled by the whole deal. But he also said, everything's worked out great for me. I'm where I want to be, doing the things I want to do, coaching these kids, and it's been great. And what he's talking about there is his current job. He's the athletic director of his alma mater, Hickman County High School. And so he's coaching kids. He's at one point coaching basketball and baseball. He does field maintenance. He's mowing the lawn. He is also planning basketball tournaments and doing the things that a high school athletic director does at a small school. And that lawn he's mowing, that baseball field is named after him. (laughs) That's nice. I found this article on the Hickman School's website. Mike was named the Employee of the Month in May of 2017. (laughs) There's something very small town about that, but also something really great. And it shows, I think, how Mike feels about this job. Like that this is the most important job to him and something that he really loves to do. And he even said in this interview, while he made money playing baseball, this is the job he always wanted. And there's something very... Uh, very nice about that. And Mike is, you know, a a greeter at his local church and still a local hero and a local legend as one of the guys who made it out of the small town and made it to the big leagues. We talked a little bit about Minnie Pearl earlier. And something I found charming in Minnie Pearl's story is the end of her autobiography. And she talks about Grinder's Switch and this mythical small town. And she says... People always ask me, where's Grinder Switch? As I grow older, the place is no longer a little abandoned landing switch on a railroad in Hickman County. Grinder Switch is a state of mind where all you worry about is what you're going to wear to the church social and if your feller is going to kiss you in the moonlight on the way home. I wish for all of you a Grinder Switch. And so it seems that Mike has found his Grinder Switch and it's back home in Centerville, Tennessee. As the athletic director, mowing lawns, taking care of field maintenance, and uh, he has a what seems like a very happy life. A small town boy that makes it big, so a great story. And thank you to his nephew, Ryan, for sending it in to us. And if there's anything that we miss, Ryan, please let us know, and we'll follow up in a future episode. But until then, we want to thank you. Thank you for listening at home. And if you like to tell jokes in a cornfield like we do, we would love to hear from you. You can send them to us on Twitter at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.